But as I said before, we are now entering into this season which is traditionally called Advent, uh, where Christians have, have taken the time approaching the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ to reflect on the first coming of Jesus Christ in the form of a child and a, a man to come and save us, and then also to think forward to his second coming. And as we consider these two things, we remember that he came the first time for forgiveness of sins, and then that he is coming again the second time as king and ruler of all, some of which we read in Isaiah just a little while ago. But the idea of, of Advent and thinking about Advent before we come to the celebration of Christ is really has traditionally been this, that we as the people of God start to think about how we fit and how we live between these two comings, these two advents of Jesus. We know he has come the first time for salvation and he is coming again the second time and we live in the middle of those. And so this time of reflection as we move forward is for us to think about what does that mean for us in the middle of it? How do we live these things and, and rejoice in what has been and look forward and hope to what is to come? Often the thoughts that we focus on and consider as we move into these things is, is we think on things like our anticipation of Christ's coming, our hope of his appearing again. We are, are drawn to the, the comfort of Jesus and God as he has forgiven us of our sins and we consider the humility of Jesus Christ in humbling himself from being uh, uh, at home in heaven to coming in the form of man and doing what needed to be done. And so we consider many of these thoughts. And it's interesting, as we come now to chapter 17, it's many of these themes which we see addressed in Luke chapter 17. And we're going to talk about these as we go through these next few weeks, which is why I say... We're not going to be so traditionally looking at the Christmas season, the Christmas messages we go through, as much as we are going to be taking these themes that Jesus shows us in Luke 17. Themes like today, we're going to be talking about forgiveness, which is at the heart of the first coming of Christ. We'll be talking about thanksgiving and the grace of God in next week. And then we begin to look towards the end of chapter 7 as Jesus describes to us his coming kingdom. And what his kingdom means. These are the themes that seem to dominate the thoughts of, of Advent traditionally. And they will dominate our thoughts as we move forward together in the next few weeks. So it makes this chapter, verse chapter 17, helpful for us. As I said, chapter 16 had a lot of topics which were difficult, confrontational in many ways. Chapter 17 is not so confrontational, but no less difficult. There are things in here which are going to challenge us and move us forward and more deeply into to our faith, but perhaps not as controversial as some of the things Jesus spoke of in chapter 16. Here, as he has been talking to the, the, the Pharisees, he turns now to the disciples. And you can see in verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, Then he said to the disciples... So he's been speaking to the Pharisees and, and talking to them about things. Now he turns to the disciples and he's going to give them a lesson. He's going to teach them some lessons. And in these lessons, not only is he going to teach them 
what they need to be like and how they need to live their life, but also compare them to the, the, the opposite, that is the, the Pharisees who are the direct opposite of everything Jesus is about to say. You know, the Pharisees were full of pride and they looked harshly on other people, didn't care for others and judging others, whereas Jesus was the opposite, has a deep care for people. And so as we look this morning, we'll read here in just one moment, we're going to find two very important ways that we can follow the example of Jesus. So let's read together in Luke chapter 17, the first 10 verses. It says, Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come home in for, or come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But he will, will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper, gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, and we are both encouraged and challenged by your word, we ask for your blessing today, your strength as we learn from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Two, two important things we, or, or important attitudes we're going to learn here. And really, these two important attitudes are connected. They go together. And so we're dividing them simply to look at the various aspects of it. But really, we're looking at the same thought, the lessons that Jesus teaches us here from verse, uh, for verses 1 to 10 of Luke 17. The first is, I think, fairly obvious, and that is two of the characteristics, the lessons we learn from Jesus here about following him is firstly, as the people of God, we are to be forgiving. Be forgiving. The first couple of verses of our text here in Luke 17 says, Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offense should come. Let's consider that for a moment, because what he begins there at the beginning is firstly to tell us this, that no one is perfect. No one is perfect. And in that, he essentially says that we will all stumble. We will all stumble and fall. No one is perfect. This uh, word offenses he uses here means to, to, to stumble, as, as it were. So it's not just a chance. What he's saying is it's not just a chance that we will fall into sin, but it's a certainty. We are going to fall. We are going to stumble. We are going to, 
to do what we ought not to do. Literally, the, the word offenses there literally means like bait in a trap. Because we are going to be drawn to this bait. It's a trap. It says, and eventually, we are all, without doubt, going to take the bait. We're going to fall. We're going to stumble in this life. We're going to be enticed by sin and do it because we're fallen people in a fallen world. We have still the, the, the remnants here of, of sin in our life and the, the issues of sin in our life. And the chief desire, the chief part of, of sin is self and pride. What makes me want what I want. Now, we are, because of Jesus Christ and his coming, we are saved from the penalty of sin. That is, we are not going to pay for our sin if we have believed that Jesus paid for our sin already and trusted in him as Savior. We're saved from that penalty of sin. We are also saved from the power of sin. That is, that now I do not... uh, have to give in to the sin, I have the power of God within me to be able to say no, to be able to overcome sin in my life. So we are saved from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but we are not yet saved from its presence, which means there is still time, there is still trouble for us to be drawn into it, to be tempted and enticed to sin. It's one of the encouraging things about this statement from Jesus. He says, it is impossible. And that is a, a very emphatic statement. So he's not just saying that you know, it, it may be like that. He's saying it's absolutely not possible at all. It is completely impossible for you not to stumble, for you not to fall. One of the things that's assuring about that is that Jesus is assuring us that he knows we're not perfect. He says right there, I know you're not perfect. I know you're going to fall. You're going to be enticed by sin. Now, while that is true, and Jesus recognizes that reality and understands it, it is not an excuse. It's simply a recognition of the reality. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or maturing, growing in the word. We are to pursue maturity. We're to pursue perfection, to learn and to grow and to to, uh, become more like Christ, which is the purpose that we're saved for. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, for whom he foreknew... He also predestined, and what did he predestine us to be? To be conformed to the image of his Son. So while Jesus recognizes that the reality is we live in a sinful world and we are going to fall into sin, and he says, I know that's going to happen. He says, that's not an excuse. You still must pursue righteousness. Still pursue what is good and what is godly. Now, while he says that, He makes that right up the front. It's impossible that you will not stumble in this world. But he continues on in the the second half of that verse and beyond where he says, but woe to him through whom they do come. That is, so uh, it's impossible for us not to stumble, but beware or woe or trouble on the person who makes another one stumble. 
Verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Now, the little ones there is not children. He's speaking of his, his people, his children, uh, God's own people. So what he says is, yes, we will all stumble. But the second part of that statement is this. Don't make it harder for others. Don't make it harder for others. Recognize our imperfection so that we can correct it. We can't take sin and we can't take God's word flippantly. Think, well, I can do this or I can do that or I don't really like that, so I'm going to think of it this way instead. We've got to take God's word seriously, not flippantly and say this or that or whatever we want or as uh, with sin, the same, because that's what the Pharisees were doing. In fact, that's one of the very things Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. In uh, Luke chapter 11 and verse 52, it says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and those who, are, those who were entering, you hindered. He says, so you've taken what you knew, you didn't know it right, and you started teaching other people the wrong way, and so you weren't entering, and then you told everybody else to go the wrong way. He says, you're hindering people from being what they need to be. Instead, we're called to build people up, not hinder people from uh, finding the right way. In Romans chapter 14, and in verse 12, I'll read a few verses here from Romans 14. Here, Paul is speaking about how our lives can be a stumbling block to one another. The particular instance here is about eating meat offered to idols. That was an issue for them in that stage in, in some of the Gentile countries because as, as meat was being offered to idols as sacrifices, it was then taken and sold in the markets. And so some people thought, it's just meat. The idol doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter. So it's just meat and eat it. And so some of the Christians thought, yep, eat the meat. It's fine. But other Christians thought, no, that meat has been used to worship another god, a false god. So we ought not to eat that meat. And so there was some tension between the Christians there. Should we eat the meat or shouldn't we eat the meat? Because is it... Which, what do we do? And so... We don't want one causing the other to stumble. And so here is Paul's part of Paul's instructions in that manner. And he says in Romans chapter 14 and verse 12, So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus Christ that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. So what does he say? He says, all right, you may think it's okay to eat that meat as an example. 
But if you go to your friend's house, your brother in Christ's house or sister in Christ's house, and you eat that or you have them over and they say, where'd you get that meat? Say, I bought it from the markets that sold it to there. And they say, I can't eat that. So the best thing to do would have been not to have that meat there at all. Don't cause them trouble based on your own things. Do what is good for everybody to build up the faith. It is no little thing to lead someone away from the truth. This is what verse 2 is saying. Verse 2 is telling us how heavily God thinks on the way we treat one another and the way we lead others through this life. He says, if you lead somebody astray by your life, if you cause them to stumble, if you are the reason they struggle in their faith, it is a terrible terrible thing don't let that be you don't make people's walk in the faith harder it's already hard enough so don't be part of weakening someone's faith so no one is perfect and so as he continues he tells us to forgive freely to forgive freely and in forgiving freely we need to find forgiveness It says at the beginning of verse 3, take heed to yourselves. So the question then, perhaps, at least for me, is how can we avoid leading others astray? If it is uh, part of who we are as Christians to say, I don't want to, to be a stumbling block. I don't want to make it harder for those around me. What do I do? Look at yourself first. Consider your own life first. Don't think too highly of yourself take heed to yourselves first corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 says therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall is, don't think you're above it all think you're stronger than that at times you will fall so paul advises us to learn from the struggles of others galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 he says this brethren If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. He's saying people are going to fall and it's our job to help them and and lift them up. And in doing that, when you minister to those that have fallen, consider yourself, learn the lessons. Heed the examples and the warnings that come. Our first action needs to be seeking forgiveness for our own sins. Cleansing our lives so not to be a stumbling block to others. Pursuing Christ so that uh, our life can be an example, to be an example of Christ-likeness. See, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, John reminds us the words of Jesus. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To those who seek forgiveness, God freely gives forgiveness. 
As we come to God, as we do this, and as we examine ourselves and we take heed to ourselves, when we find where we lack, when we find what we have done which is not right, and we go and we seek forgiveness from God our Father, he says he freely gives forgiveness. And there we find the forgiveness we desperately need. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And that's where it begins. It begins at that moment when we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he came to die for my sins and in my place, that I am a sinner, that I need forgiveness. And in seeking him for that forgiveness to save me from my sins, he will forgive. We find the forgiveness of sins. And from that moment on, he cleanses us. Seek forgiveness from those you have sinned against. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23, it says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. You say, if you're going to worship, and you get there to worship, and you realize, I've, I've offended somebody. Go to them. Take care of it. Take care of what needs to be done. Find forgiveness. And in finding forgiveness, give forgiveness. The end of verse 3 of our text here in Luke 17 says what begins, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, And seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now, as he says here, when he says that if your brother sins against you, rebuke him, we're not meant to rebuke or correct for every sin. Every sin that somebody does against us or every sin that happens, we're not meant to to go and correct and demand repentance from someone over every single little thing that happens to us. Most often, most of our forgiveness should flow freely. Most of the time, when people sin against us, it's inadvertent. It's it's not uh, on purpose. It wasn't meant to offend. It was them being a normal sinful person and did the wrong thing at the wrong time. May not have even realized it. Doesn't matter. So most of our forgiveness is meant to flow freely whether they seek forgiveness or not. We're just to give it on most occasions. But when necessary, when there is a a moment where a a, a serious grievance has happened, where uh, it's breaking down the relationship, where struggles and trials are happening because of it, we need to approach and correct it. It needs to be done correctly. Correction needs to happen. How is that to happen. How do we do that? How do we go about that? It's not a matter of just going up to someone and saying, you did me wrong. You owe me apology. Jesus actually gives us a good example. In fact, he tells us how to go about it in Matthew chapter 18. How do we take care of our grievances, of the things that happen that go wrong in our life? And he says in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So if somebody's offended us and is causing our relationship to break down, what do we do? Don't tell everyone about it. Don't start spreading around saying, do you know what they did to me? Do you know what happened there? Do you know how, how horrible they are? Stay away from them. They'll just do that. No. Quietly, on your own, go to them and tell them, this is what's happened. You've, you've hurt me. You've broken a relationship. You've broken a promise. You've done this, and it's causing some strain in our relationship. Can we take care of this? The reason Jesus tells us we do that, to go to them on our own, is for this, to restore the relationship. If we can do that, if we can go together and we can sort it out together and talk it out and say, this is it, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can fix it, and it's done, and it doesn't have to go beyond that, and our relationship can continue to grow. But as sometimes, sadly, happens... Sometimes we get stubborn in our sin and we don't want to see what is wrong in our life and we may refuse that. And if that refuses, then Jesus says, well, let's take some people with us, some good friends who can come and we can counsel together. And we can see if we can find a way together to restore the relationship. If, after some wise counsel, we can't restore the relationship, well, then we bring it to the church to see what needs to happen. How can we deal with this sin in the life of a brother or sister in Christ? And let's make what happens need to happen so that we can bring them back into a relationship. If they refuse the advice and the guidance of the church, then the church is to say, you need to go. Now, the idea of all of this is not to get to the end. Every point in this, every part of this process, Jesus reminds us, is to bring them back. Even at the very end. So even at the end, if the, if the person refuses to, be, to, be, to hear the advice and the counsel of the church, and the church has to say, we need to put you out, the whole point of it is so that they will recognize what they have lost, repent, and we can bring them back in again. It's always about the restoration of a relationship. As Jesus puts it for us here in these verses, he says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. To what end? Repentance. And if he repents, what do we do? Forgive. There's nothing else to it. If he repents, we forgive to restore the relationship. This is, we read a moment ago in, in Galatians chapter 6, but verse 2 goes on and adds a little bit more. It says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. When they repent, you forgive. And Jesus tells us here, you do this as much as is necessary. Now, he uses seven here just as, as an example. 
But essentially what he's saying is it doesn't matter how many times a day they offend you. If they come back and they repent, you forgive. Forgiveness is to be freely given. Restore that relationship. You shall forgive, he says. We don't hold a grudge. And we don't stand over them. So if they come to us seven times in one day, I'm sorry, I've done it. Please forgive me. I will change. We say, I forgive you. We don't go back to them tomorrow and say, boy, I hope you do better than yesterday because yesterday was awful. All day you screwed up and you offended me over and over again. You better be better today. No, that's not what we do. When we forgive, we leave it where it's at. And we start again every time. We don't stand over them in self-righteousness. We forgive them in a spirit of love and humility because to do otherwise is to sin and become a stumbling block. If I withhold forgiveness from a brother or sister in Christ who is seeking forgiveness, I am making their growth in Christ more difficult than it needs to be. And then who's the sinner? I am. We forgive remembering how much we have been forgiven. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why are we forgiving one another? Even as Christ, even as God in Christ forgave you. Why am I forgiving? Well, how about you think for a moment about how much you have been forgiven and continue to be forgiven. Is this not how Jesus taught us to pray? In his example prayer in Matthew 6, one of the lines he shows us there about how to pray, about what our attitude in prayer ought to be is, and forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Be forgiving. The second thought this morning out of our two thoughts about learning to be like Christ is firstly, be forgiving. And the second, which really goes hand in hand with it, is this, be humble. Be humble. Verse 5 continues, and the apostles said to to the Lord, increase our faith. How many of you can relate to that? Right? You've read the first four verses and Jesus says, forgive. And just keep forgiving and keep forgiving and keep forgiving. And then you think, but that's really hard. I don't know if I can do that. That's what the disciples are thinking. And as they're listening to Jesus say, just keep forgiving, they're saying, we're going to need more faith, God. We're going to need help. I can't do this on my own. See, it is a recognition that forgiveness doesn't come naturally. Forgiveness doesn't come naturally, and so we need to recognize our weakness. Recognize our weakness. To me, verse 5 is an understandable statement. Because I know how the disciples feel. When you're in a situation, I don't know if I can just keep forgiving them. I don't know if if I can forgive for this offense. This offense was huge. It really hurt. Or they they drew me away in a way which I don't know if I can forgive. 
Everything about what Jesus said is immensely difficult. Okay, so verse 1 to 4, they're easy to read, but they are immensely difficult to live. So like the disciples, we must recognize our weakness. Forgiveness doesn't come naturally. It's not an easy uh, response for us. So I must humbly admit that I, I sin against others and I need forgiveness. I must humbly admit that I find it difficult to forgive others. Pride is a horrible monster which must be starved. If it doesn't, it will remove forgiveness from us. Admit it. You need help forgiving someone. We all need help. So go to God and ask him to increase your faith. Trust him that if you follow (coughs) and obey, he will do in you what you cannot So verse 6, they say, Jesus, we can't do it on our own. Increase our faith. So Jesus replies like this. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Rely on God's power. Rely on God's power. Again, Jesus uses this picture of the the tiniest little seed as being just the the small uh, effort or the small part that is needed. And then the very large tree. We were talking just before church about mulberry trees and, and how large these mulberry trees could get. The picture is this. What seems huge to us and impossible to us with God is but a small, simple thing. We may be looking at the circumstance and I don't know how I can forgive. I don't know how I can get past this. It is too large for me. And God says, no, it's not. I can help you do this. It is a work of God in us. Forgiveness is a supernatural thing. It's a supernatural thing. God working in us and God gives us the ability to do what he commands. Now, this forgiveness doesn't come naturally and we do need to rely on the power of God. But note this also as we continue to look. Forgiveness doesn't make you extraordinary. Forgiving someone, even if it's a huge debt or if it's a a great grievance, doesn't make you extraordinary extraordinary. Jesus is about to tell us a story here as we look at these verses, which is going to tell us this truth. Forgiveness is our duty. So he says in verse 7, and which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now Jesus is not making a a statement here about slavery. He's using an example from what they understood, their life. 
right? They know, uh, they can see how servants work. The picture is this. If you have a servant, you have paid that servant to do a day's work and his job is to go out in the field and do the field or the sheep and then come back and do dinner. When he comes in from the field, you don't say, oh, let me get you dinner. No, no, I've paid you to go out in the field and work and to come back and make me dinner and then you can have yours. That's what you do. That's your job. That's what you were paid to do. That's what I've given you the job to do. So when he comes back in and he does that, that's what you expect. He's expected to perform certain duties. The servant isn't to expect high praise or more pay because he did what he was expected to do. So when the servant comes in from the field and he hopes that the master will have something there for him to eat and have prepared for him, but doesn't and says, no, finish your jobs and then you can eat, when he does that, he doesn't expect the master to go, great job. I know it was so hard for you today to come in from the field and then to finish your work here in the house. Really good effort. Let me give you some extra money today because you did what I asked you to do. That's not. The servant shouldn't expect high praise for doing what he was paid to do to begin with. The picture is this, that it's the same with us. Forgiveness is a supernatural grace, but it doesn't make you extraordinary when you forgive. We don't expect God to fawn all over us because we forgave someone. No matter how big the grievance, no matter how big the trouble, when we forgive, we should not be expecting God to go, Oh, bless you, my child. Look at the wonderful thing you have done. I told you to forgive and you did it. Amazing. I'll have all my people and angels come and praise you because you obeyed. No. Forgiveness is simply what he expects. That's it. He expects forgiveness. We admire, perhaps if you know, people like Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom is well known uh, in, in many areas. She went through uh, World War II and was imprisoned by the, the Nazis when they came through Holland lived in the concentration camps, had her best friend die while she was there through the, the tragedies of the soldiers there. She tells uh, an account of a time when she was in Munich, Germany, and she was speaking because she began to, to travel and speak about what God had done in her life through the concentration camps and beyond that. And she talks about forgiveness And so she tells this time where she was in Munich, Germany, and she had been speaking about forgiveness. And a part of the account goes something like this. At the close of the service, a a balding man, this is in 1947, in a grey overcoat, stepping forward to greet her, Corey froze. She knew this man well. He'd been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrook, one who had mocked the women prisoners as they showered. And now he was pushing his hand out to take hers and saying, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. 
And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I have known that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again to be forgiven. And I could not forgive. Betsy, her best friend, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for asking? The soldier stood there, expectantly waiting for Corey to shake his hand. She wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. Standing there before the former SS man, Corey remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will, not an emotion. Jesus, help me, she prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. Corey thrust out her hand. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love, I had tried, and it did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. See, she illustrates exactly what Jesus was telling us there. Forgiveness is not easy, and it does not come naturally. But he will help us do it. One day, God will honor his people and serve them, but that, again, will be an act of grace. Forgiveness is our duty and humility is our calling. We're called to Christ and to make much of Christ, not to make much of ourselves. Let me finish with these words from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Forgiveness is a command, but it flows from the heart of humility. 
a heart which recognizes our need of forgiveness and is thankful for the forgiveness that we have received. Forgiveness is a command, but it is not a command without power. So seek God for your forgiveness. Seek God to forgive others. As we enter this Christmas, this Advent season, we are reminded that this is a season of forgiveness. Jesus came to bring forgiveness of sins. To do this, he humbled himself to become a man. To become like us and to pay our debt, not his. Freely you have received, the saying goes, so freely give. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to learn from your word, to be challenged by it, because, dear God, surely this is a great challenge. But in that, we are reminded that it is a command which you empower. So like the disciples, we cry, Lord, increase our faith, that we might be a people of humility and forgiveness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.